welcome to episode seven of the Now What podcast. You're listening to the Now What podcast, a podcast for women healing from loss that will provide you with practical ways to overcome the challenges you are facing as you navigate the aftermath of loss. If you're ready to get unstuck and move forward with confidence on your journey, then this is the podcast for you. It is possible to start loving the life you're living after loss. And here is your guide, host, certified life coach, and widowed mom, Erin Hinty. Hey there, and thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you're just tuning in for the first time, I'm your host of the podcast, Erin Hinty. On today's episode, I've invited a fellow widow to share her journey through grief, and I'm honored to be introducing you today to Melanie LaRue joining us from Texas. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me. Hi, thanks for joining. I am just so glad that you have raised your hand and said, I want to share my story. And I know you've shared quite a bit of background with me before this episode today, but I I definitely want to take a moment to hear a little bit about your story and to share it with our listeners today. But I do have to say, like, it's so funny because I feel like I already know you, (laughs) even though we've never met in real life. I think connecting through a Facebook community after the loss of my husband has been super important. So I want to I want to say I know you. But not yeah. really. So let's get to know each other today. Yeah, I don't really know where to start. Let's start here. Before before we started recording today, you mentioned to me that you're a doctor. And wow, that's incredible. I know it's taken a lot for you to get here. So let's rewind for just a moment. And I want you to share the story of how you met your husband. I, well, I'm, I, I live in a small town, a smaller town town in a north central Texas called Wichita Falls. And I went to a very small private elementary school where we had like 20 kids or something. And then when I was in seventh grade, I went to the public junior high, which was a huge change. Lots of kids. It was great. I mean, I loved it. Made lots of friends, but very overwhelming. And my first day, I sat in my science class in front of a boy named Jeffrey LaRue who I don't know how to better describe than just, he just never stopped following me around from then on. (laughs) We became instant friends and, you know, a lot of our friends would tell me he had a crush on me and stuff, but it was fine. He, it's funny, my hands are sweating now because I'm anxious from this, but he, I used to get so mad at him in junior high because he run up in the hallways and grab my hands and then comment loudly how sweaty my hands were. I'm like, why are you grabbing my hands anyway? And we just kind of fell into this incredible friendship that continued through junior high, through high school, through dating other people. And then we got accepted and went to the University of Texas in Austin. And I think it just kind of became obvious at some point, a couple years in, that we weren't going to be dating anyone else because we didn't want to spend time with anyone else. And so he decided to ask me if I wanted to go see a ballet and go out to dinner. And then I guess we were dating and then it just kind of never stopped. And I remember telling my mom about it and I said, 
I came home from college for Christmas. It must've been our junior year. Jeffrey was the one who knew all the dates. And I said, uh, mom, I have to tell you something. And she said, is it about Jeffrey? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, all I can tell you is you've either ended your best friendship or you've um, started dating the man you're going to marry. And I was like, well, I think I kind of have to marry him at this point. And she's like, yeah, I think so. And so then I got accepted to medical school and we moved to University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. So we moved down to Galveston Island and he moved and got a house down there. And I lived with my sister who was in school down there too. And then during third year, he proposed and we got married during my fourth year. He was pretty adamant that we get married in time for me to have his last name on my medical diplomas. He was always kind of trying to make sure to tie, tie all the, tie all the loose ends up. <laughs> like, like I was maybe going to like skip away, which I was never going to do, but <laughs> he, uh, I'll never forget the night he proposed. We'd gone out to this restaurant on, down on the Galveston's a long skinny Island. So if you go anywhere, you, you have to drive forever. So We'd gone to this restaurant down on the West End and uh, it was like a nice dinner. And we didn't, you know, we were students. We didn't do nice dinners. And he had told me that his dad had paid for it because he had just gotten accepted to a master's of public health program that he was going to go to. So I was like, okay. And we're like eating this nice dinner and we have a bottle of wine. And he asked the waiter to cork our wine for us so that we weren't going to finish it. And we were going to take it home. And I'm like, it's so freaking weird, Jeff. Like, what have we ever not, like, it's fine, you know? And all day he'd been giving me little presents. He gave me a roll of quarters because I was asking for quarters so that I could get Diet Cokes on campus. And he gave me uh, stuff I hadn't thought about in a while. A couple little presents all throughout the day. And, but that wasn't anything unusual. And so we come back home and my sister was out of town. And so it was just the two of us. And we come back to my apartment and it was, has like a, a little patio with like, like French doors that open up. And inside I could see that the lights were on. And I was like, oh my God, I turned all the lights off. We got to call the cops. And he's like, no, it's okay. And I'm like, no, Jeffrey, like I turned all the lights off. I was very careful because I kind of thought we'd stay at his house that night, but he wanted to go back to my house. And he's like, no, it's fine. And he opens the door and there are like a thousand tea lights, candles lit and tulips, which are my favorite flower. Like, I mean, like a 200 tulips all over the place. And I realized like somebody's been here, something's going on. This is really weird. And I think he's going to propose and he just puts his hand on my back and he says, Melanie, it's going to be okay. Just go inside. <laughs> like, Okay. So that was when we got engaged. He wanted to get married before I graduated medical school. And so we got married. And then, so the kind of the weird thing that a lot of people don't maybe know about the medical field is when you finish medicine, then you apply for a residency program, which is your training program, how you learn to be in your specialty. And I had chosen ear, nose and throat, which is fairly competitive and can be kind of difficult to match into. And so you go into this process called the match where you interview at different programs, they interview you, you, you interview them really, they're interviewing you. And then you submit a list and it's almost like the military, wherever if they have ranked you and you've ranked them and that matches up your option. And your only option is to go to that facility and train and if you, you basically, if you say no, then you don't go into the field. So we ended up in Southern California, which is not, I, I have a special love for Southern California now, but as a Texan, I didn't particularly want to go there or anywhere other than Texas, <laughs> but Jeffrey went with me. And so we went out to California and he had just gotten his master's in public health and thought he'd work in the public health sector and really, um, 
I mean, there just weren't really any jobs. And he had always resisted going into law. His father was an attorney, is an attorney. Well, he's retired, but and uh, always resisted and always resisted. And then finally applied to law school out there and ended up going to actually get a combined MBA and, and JD and law degree at Chapman Law School in Orange, California, which was great. And it ended up being great. And so he did law school out there while I did residency. And they were some really tough and really great years, you know, that just that young, intense kind of thing. And, you know, before you have kids, when it's, you're just like, really excited when you have enough money to go to Chili's on a Friday night and, you know, <laughs> like go to the beach on the weekends. And we take these short little vacations up to surrounding areas like Big Bear Mountain is up there. And we had very little family out there and none that we were particularly close to anyway. And all of our family was back in Texas and it was very isolating, but not in a bad way. We decided to go ahead and try and have kids. And we got um, pregnant with my eldest, David, pretty easily. And I ended up having David, let's see, he was born in November of my fourth year. of ENT is a five-year residency program. And then when we had David, we just wanted to come home. And so we did. So we moved home after I finished residency in 2015. And so my, my parents still live here. His parents had retired and moved out to New Mexico, but Three of his sisters, three of his four sisters lived here. And one of my sisters lived here. The other one lives in the Metroplex. So we, you know, kind of had immediate family and friends. And I have this really uniquely amazing practice with partners who are just above and beyond anything and just have a great life and, you know, bought a house. And then when we were trying to get pregnant with our second, we had trouble and um, ended up doing IVF for that, which was kind of its own unique hell if anyone's ever been through fertility stuff, but we ended up being a very fortunate success story and got pregnant on our first round. And then Jeffrey died two weeks before Henry was born. So let's, let's pause there for just a moment. What a beautiful story that you just shared. I wanted to just honor your story because you have been through so much and just making the decision of moving away from family and starting a new life together to coming back to come closer to family to be home and to sort of set you up for where you are today it feels like so share with me before we go back and talk about the loss of Jeffrey let's talk about where you're at right now and kind of what you've what you've been up to and do i have this correct that you have some pet chickens running around here well they they are safely tucked away but yeah yeah I, yeah I got a few um fun my therapist called them distractions which my sister and I joke about now because I'm like I guess my whole life is full of distractions but whatever I so currently I I'm four years a little plus four years plus out Jeffrey died in December of 2020 so wait no December of 2017 December 20th of sorry it's been a little over four years or zero years. It depends on the day because time isn't real. And so I live with my sister and her husband and their three children and my two children. So we've got five kids and our other current counts are three dogs, one cat and 16 chickens. 
What has that been like for you living with, what was um, the decision that you had to come to when you decided to move in with family? Jeffrey died on a Wednesday. (laughs) That's only relevant because for a long time, I only counted in Wednesdays. And I had a private practice and a four-year-old and a baby due in 14 days. And not due, but like C-section scheduled, like that was just the day he was being born. And I, the morning that I found Jeffrey, I packed up my bags and went to my parents' house. And that's where I stayed while we were planning the funeral. And so for a couple of days and my younger sister, who's only younger by 18 months, but she's uh, my younger sister. She is an accountant and, and is not very used to not getting her way in general. Cause she's the third kid in the family. And then she's an accountant and she just tell she just, she gets kind of things her way. And she did not think that the best thing for me was going to be, which was my plan was have the baby and go back to my house and live in my house. And she thought that that was a pretty stupid plan. And then like a lot of things, Valerie tends to be right. And so on the first Wednesday after Jeffrey died, seven days later, I moved to my sister and brother-in-law's house. Um, which is a great house. We love that house. And they turned their playroom into a bedroom for me. And on the second Wednesday after Jeffrey died, I had Henry. And he was the best thing that could have ever happened, ever did happen, ever has happened in only the way that a baby can be. And then we, I brought him back to Val and Andrew's house and we started trying to settle in. and. And we did, and we did great. And it was a smaller house, but it it was a great house. And we had this one dinner, I think, where my sister and my brother-in-law and I went out and we really talked about the future. And I was still intent on moving back to my house. And at that point, I really didn't want to. And I also didn't know how I was going to work with a four-year-old and an infant. Because of course I can have a, a nanny and help during the day, but I take call. Um, and have to be available at least for sometimes in the middle of the night. So I'd have to have somebody spend the night. I need another adult in the house. I need somebody who can handle the kids. And so my sister and supposedly with my brother-in-law, it remains, you know, jury's always out whether or not he really wanted that first meeting, but we decided to move forward and buy a house altogether. And we tore off some of the butcher paper that was the placemats at the restaurant and signed a contract that said we would maintain honesty and boundaries with each other. And then the next week we went and looked for a house and bought a new house and we called it the coop. It's actually kind of a funny story. Right after Jeffrey died, I think it was the fifth Wednesday or sixth Wednesday. And so my sister and I, my sister went out immediately to buy a suburban that was big enough for all eight of us. Cause that's just kind of the stuff that she does. So she was invited to a, a good friend of hers from college, her uh, wedding. And I hadn't been invited. My parents were invited. I mean, you know, but then they had reached out and said, Hey, like, if please come to the wedding. And I'm like, I'm going to come to the wedding, but, but I decided to go to South Carolina anyway. So my sister and I packed up the five pack, the five kids and drove from Texas to South Carolina to go to this wedding. My brother-in-law flew to meet us out there and we think we're hilarious. So we hashtagged our whole trip and our two favorite hashtags were quarter life crisis. 
which is great. And also two hens, five chicks. And then when my brother-in-law met us up, we added and the rooster. And so after that, a girlfriend of mine said, I can't always call the house Valerie and Melanie's house. She's like, so since y'all had called yourself the two hens and five chicks, I just call it the chicken coop. So we called our house the coop. And then I decided to get actual chickens. So that's how the whole chicken thing started, (laughs) which has never ended and won't end. I love it. Are they like your therapy chickens? Are they? Oh my gosh, so much. And they provided so much, like I said, my therapist would have called it distraction, but I just needed things to get me outside. Like, so we, and the chickens, what happened was I wanted to grow a watermelon. And so I planted some watermelons and then there were ants on the watermelons. And I was reading about natural ways to get rid of ants on watermelons. And one of the best ways is to have chickens. So then I got chickens because that felt like the name. So now we have, now we have 16 chickens in a pretty big garden every summer. And the kids love and hate it because they love doing it, but also they have to do chicken chores and which is like once a week and we help them. It's not that big of a deal, but it's fun. You know, we get the eggs. It it gives the kids something to do. It gives them an opportunity to get outside and do something and earn, you know, a hot buck so that they can play Minecraft for a minute. So I can so relate to that. (laughs) So, you know, you just, yeah, I'm like, so it's, it's really been a good therapeutic exercise for the whole family. And my brother-in-law who was exceedingly close to my husband, I mean, they, married these two sisters and, and my sister and brother-in-law started dating in high school when we were all in high school together. So this is, it's been a long thing with the four of us. And even when we moved back home before Jeffrey died, it was dinner at my house or their house almost every night. We'd sign up for HelloFresh and get the same meals so that we could all do it together. And then, you know, Andrew's partner in crime dropped off the face of the earth. And so he had a lot of his own struggles and he's always loved kind of building stuff. And so one of the things the chickens, you know, provided was when I kept getting more, because it's kind of like a Pringles problem. Once you pop, you don't stop. And so you just, and then you find other breeds that you want. And so then my brother-in-law, you know, got to spend several weeks designing and building a chicken coop that he bought new power tools for. And it, it was just a great exercise for him. And so it, in a lot of weird ways, the chickens have been really good for the whole family. Yeah. <laughs> and our neighbors who get eggs. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure they love that. My favorite are farm fresh or backyard eggs. Those are the best. So good. So good. Awesome. Let's go back for a minute. We skipped over, but intentionally, because I always like to know kind of the story of the two of you and then kind of where you're at now, but it's been a four year journey to get here. So Mm -hmm. I want you to share as much as you're, you're comfortable, but share with everybody just a little bit about Jeffrey's loss and what surrounded that and what were kind of the next steps you had to decide to take because you were about to give birth to a baby. So like, that's a whole nother layer in and of itself. So take us back to that, if you don't mind. So, yeah, so I was extremely pregnant and it was Christmas time, which was Jeffrey's favorite time. I mean, not a piece of furniture wasn't decorated. There was garland everywhere, every year. I mean, Christmas music and, you know, just 
really, we were just super looking forward to the baby. We were so relieved. We'd been through this IVF process and it was just good. Jeffrey's law practice, he had, he had, when we came to the town, he had started working at legal aid, which is kind of like as an attorney, you kind of start there. It's kind of paying your dues. And then he decided to go out on his own and make his own law practice. And that was a bit of a frustration for me because it wasn't so much keeping him busy. And so he had actually recently joined a new law practice and, and he, he was new to the law practice. The law practice was not anyway. And it was a boss that it was just, he and one other attorney and she a well-established attorney and he just loved it. She was wonderful. She is still wonderful. And things were just good. You know, David was four and healthy and really pretty good four-year-old. And I mean, we were just kind of chugging along and I had been sick that weekend. I'd had like a cold or something. And Jeffrey ended up taking David to a birthday party that I didn't want to go to. And then he'd gone to a Christmas party, you know, so he'd gone out and then that uh, Tuesday night, he was sick and like, you know, regular cold or whatever. And I was on call, which always makes me grumpy anyway. And he had this cold and was kind of getting in the shower and taking medicine. And I was kind of just tossing and turning and I was getting frustrated with him and just having the man flu and so I went to sleep in another room and then he went to sleep on the couch and I checked it at about two and it was really pretty snarky. And so I went to bed and I mean, the next morning I got up, I showered, David came in and was talking to me while I was getting ready. And I normally would have told him to go wake up dad, but I just was like, you know, I was kind of bitchy last night and I'm going to let him sleep. I'll, I'll take David to school. And so I set him down watching some cartoons and I went to check on Jeffrey and I walked past him sleeping on the couch. and. Uh, let the dogs out and I opened the curtains in the den where he was sleeping and I'm like, he's not breathing. And I went around the side of the couch to face him and he was just dead. He just was. And I checked for poles and called my sister and told her to come over. I didn't even tell her what was going on, but I guess she knew and called my best friend who's a trauma surgeon. And she said, just hang up and call 911. And called them and my sister got there. My best friends got there. My brother-in-law got there and the EMS people came and I had David, I'd moved him back and put him in my room. And this time I'm trying to call like my sister-in-laws cause they live in town and I'm like, they're going to see ambulances and my next door neighbors had texted Jeffrey, obviously thinking it was something to do with me and the baby and said, do we need to come get David? And thinking I was going to the hospital, which would have definitely been the more logical conclusion. We put David back in my room and the EMS guys came and said, well, there's nothing we can do. And I kind of screamed at them a little bit. That's <laughs> because I'm like, I know, just leave. And they took him away. And then we packed my bags and my brother-in-law took David to his house and... I went over to my parents' house and met with the funeral people. And I was really glad that for really healthy 34-year-old people, Jeffrey and I had talked about funerals and death and stuff. And I knew he wanted to be cremated, which was something my his family didn't agree with, but that's what he wanted. And he had told me. And I remember signing the paperwork. And I remember trying to close my eyes while I was writing the date so that the date wouldn't be burned into my memory, which is so stupid. But you know, you just think those things at the moment. And then I went 
over to my sister's house and told my four-year-old baby that his dad was dead. And that was the worst of it. And the weird thing is my baby, my baby baby just turned four like a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, how is it that you are a baby that is four years old and you were the same age that your brother was when I said, daddy died and he's never coming back. And I, what, like, thought, I don't know, you know, I mean, you just, it's so different. But then we, you know, planned the funeral and it was so weird because I remember talking to my pastor, he came over and he said, I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I can't have this baby. I can't do all this stuff. And he said, Melanie, you need to find your center. And I turned to my priest who I have known since I was a child. And I said, I just lost my fucking center. I, oh my God, I just cussed at my past. But he was incredibly kind about that. Uh, Yeah, the funeral was good. You know, my brother-in-law spoke, my husband's eldest sister spoke, and our best friend spoke. And it was good. And then the next day, I went to the same church to do candlelight while my four-year-old cried and fell asleep in my lap. And then the next day, we did Christmas. And then it just kept going day by day. And I moved into my sister's house. And then I had Henry. And the experience of having someone hand you a baby that you tried so hard to make with another person who didn't then get to be there to hold them is just, I think that was the first time I really realized this is it. And these boys just have me now. And I just, I didn't feel sorry for myself. I mean, trust me, I've had plenty of those moments, but I felt so sorry for Jeffrey. You know, he wanted this baby as much, if not more than I did. And I wouldn't let him find out the gender. So he didn't even know it was a boy. But I I knew and I had told him. I mean, I didn't know, but I knew. Having someone hand me that baby in what should have been a moment of the most pure joy that was the most pure joy I've ever felt coupled with the most crippling pain I've ever felt. This is something that's really hard. You've done a beautiful job of sharing your story. I think as we move forward on our journeys, it's so important to understand that we have these moments, right? Mm -hmm. All these significant events that are going to come along, the baby, kids going off to school, graduating, getting married. It, it never stops. But I think that's so important to understand the equal parts of joy and pain that come together. What have you needed most along your journey to be able to give yourself the time or space to be able to process the things that you're you're going through? I needed to know that my kids were okay. I needed my kids to be fed. I needed for them to be sheltered. My sister 
we, you know, those early days, you're figuring out passwords and life insurance and death certificates and, and all that stuff. But this is what my sister used to tell everyone. Cause obviously everyone would ask her all the time. How's Melanie? How's Melanie? How's Melanie? And she would say she enjoys being around her children and she's going to work. And I, I mean, obviously I didn't go to work for a while. I took three months off and possibly that wasn't enough, but it was what it was. I remember telling Valerie, you know, I just, what am I never going to cook again? I love cooking. I'm never going to cook again. Because like, why would I? So, so slowly, 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 you start back the things that you did. You know, you don't cook a gourmet meal. The kids ask for grilled cheese and you're like, well, hey, I've got all these hungry little mouths that like it. And so I slowly started cooking and now I cook for all eight of us probably five nights a week, if not six, and I meal plan. And, and it's, it's a huge part of my way to give back to this community that is my family that are these children and my other adults. And, and I mean that I feel that I need to give back to the children because they are there and they are steadfast and their emotions let you have emotions. And I, went from a place where for a long time I was so scared my eldest David would be an only child to all of a sudden his world was ripped out from underneath him and he was not only a brother but a full-time live-in cousin to three others and it was a huge adjustment and my sister's kids they they were steadfast and helped us adjust even though they were six four and 18 months old and my niece, my youngest one, she loved Henry, loved Henry. I mean, like, you know, 18-month-old girl, baby doll comes to life. And she couldn't say Henry, and she called him honey. And so uh-huh. she called him <laughs> Henry Dean the honeybean. And so we still call him honeybeans. And so the five-pack has been everything. It's important to be able to focus on other people's needs. And I'm a doctor. It's, it's what I do. And that was, you know, it's kind of hard to go back to work and have somebody tell me how much they're suffering with their allergies. And I'm like, my husband's dead. Why do I care? And that, you know, it's a lot of stuff we learn. And a lot of stuff with widowhood is number one, fake it till you make it. And Number two, like we said, like the power of the word and I can be miserable in my life and this could be the biggest thing in this person's life right now. You know, both can be true. They're not mutually exclusive and understanding that pain isn't a competition and it is a limitless resource and Mm. trying to learn the things that you can focus on to make this one wild and precious life a little bit better for you and the ones around you and just taking a breath, you know? Absolutely. And so, I mean, you just, you just packed a lot into like a few sentences. So I'm unpacking that really quick. One of the things you said about faking it till you, to make it so often, like some of the clients that I work with, they've been doing that, faking it, but sometimes it comes back to like giving yourself space to be able to understand what you want and how you want to show up in the world. And so I feel like for me, like I've had to show up in the way that I wanted, even though I didn't feel it in the moment. So that way on the other side of that. So my friends would invite me to go out on a Friday night and be like, 
I just want to stay on the couch and be in my jammies. But I knew on the other side of that, I'd be laughing and having fun. It would end up filling me up inside. And so I think knowing in the end what you you really truly need, sometimes it takes that little push within Mm -hmm. to be able to get there. But there's also this other flip side of that where we go, go, go and try to live up to everyone else's expectations and act like we're okay and trying to make it through. But at the end of the day, how have you personally taken care of your own needs during this time? Because I know that's just as important to be able to give in the way that you do on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. That's it. When my good friend, she was in trauma surgery residency and she had her first baby and she's just a very, everything is perfect and everything is on time and the baby's not eating every two hours. And her uh, pediatrician set her down and said, you know, you're on an airplane and you got to put your mask on first. You got to put your oxygen mask on first. You got to take care of yourself. And so we, we talk about that analogy a lot. Like, so, I mean, that's the question, right? What do you do to put your mask on first? I did focus on distractions for a while because after finding Jeffrey dead, I was in a loop, just a loop. A, what did I do? What did I find him? What did I say? When did I, where could I have stopped the process? And sometimes you just get off the Ferris wheel. You just got to make it stop. And so I did a lot of, I mean, for one, you know, two weeks later, I had a baby that needed to eat every three hours. That was a great reset button. Every three hours I could only focus on. And so for a little bit, it was that it was the routine of getting the baby clean. And I watched a lot of movies. I listened to a lot of books and I went back to a lot of my old favorites. I probably re-listened to the Harry Potter audiobooks like 18 times because I still think that series deals with grief better than any grief book you will read. And I read some books about grief and got mad at them. And then I want to say it was about when we went to South Carolina. So about five or six weeks later is when I found the Facebook group that we met in. And I had Googled and Googled and Googled. My husband died to have a baby. Now what do I do? And it turns out Google is not helpful for that. Great for like sugar cookie recipes. Not great for what do I do when my husband died? And I just kept trying different, very, you know how you like, you put different stuff in quotation, you know, you're trying to refine your Google search. Like surely I can get this right. And then somebody will tell me what to do. I found out that I am not the only person to have lost a spouse in my thirties or some of them in their twenties and not even the only one to lose a spouse with young kids and not even the only one to lose a spouse when pregnant. And I just poured every freaking anxious thought into that group and was typically met with someone who could say, Hey, breathe, then breathe again. And nobody in that group, nobody who's been through loss tells you they're in a better place. And, you know, it's going to get better. And God doesn't give you stuff you can't handle. You know, nobody, nobody says that to you there. They say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then that's it. And you're like, good, thank you. It is horrible, right? Like, isn't it horrible? Yeah. And, and I just found so much through that, through other people who I could say, they made it three years. And if they can make it three years, I can make it three months. And then when you make it three months, then you talk to somebody who's three weeks out and you're like, no, no, it's okay. You just breathe. And then, you know, and, and I think everyone finds their own path and their own rhythm. And, and I just 
yeah, I mean, I, I think I threw myself into my home life and I mean, work life was something that I survived for a very long time. Work life was, was hard. And I'm actually in a separate um, Facebook group for physician widows. And we talk about that a lot. It's hard to get back into kind of a caretaker role, but you can't do it if you're not okay. It's so hard to look back and say like, what did I do to get through those moments? Because you're just treading water, but you're, you don't realize that you're treading water with actual momentum towards the shore. You know, it just feels like treading water. And then you look up and actually the shore's closer and it's, it's a little closer and you've done better and you, you've traveled some distance, you know? Perfect analogy. And I think you just gave us the, the listeners listening to this a gift because one of the very first things I always, when I know someone has experienced loss is I get them connected to other people who have experienced loss and connecting with somebody who gets it and understands and is okay when you just vent about the horrible days and you celebrate the good days. And maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, the good days can look like just getting up and taking a shower. And that in and of itself is how you put your oxygen mask on slowly and start breathing. I feel like especially when there's trauma revolving around the loss, you're learning things for the very first time again because you're experiencing them in a new way and your brain becomes very aware. It's like, oh, I'm brushing my teeth today, but I'm brushing my teeth today and my husband's not here. Oh, I'm waking my kid up and they don't want to get up and I can't have my husband come in and help me get them out of bed. Yeah. It's everything. It is. It's, yeah. How has that shifted a little bit and changed for you over the last four years? First of all, I will say that I try to constantly recognize the privilege that I have with having two adults in the house with me, which is something that most widows don't have. Most widows with kids don't have. They don't have another adult to look over their shoulders. But you still, you're you're the only mom. You're the only one with the power to cure the tummy ache and the ability to put on the Band-Aid and learning to trust yourself, which is hard because you're constantly second-guessing your judgment when you're sleep-deprived and feel like you've just got such bad brain fog from widowhood. And you're like, hold on, did I just agree to two hours of iPad time? And you have to learn to be super forgiving with yourself and to really just just not sweat the small stuff and and I had to learn how much more important it is for me some days to cancel my entire clinic to stay in bed by myself and watch Lord of the Rings than it is to actually go and do the thing that I feel like I'm supposed to do because if you don't give yourself those moments those graces those whatever it is that you need in that moment then you're just doing this act that is so taxing and tiresome and it just comes back on you anyway. I just have found if I really let myself lean into it when I need to and forgive myself and really don't just say, okay, it's going to be okay because, but just absolutely be like, no, you needed that today. Then you can pick up the next day and genuinely move forward as opposed to scraping by so much. You know what I mean? Oh, Uh, absolutely. 100%. I have these conversations with people every single day. And I was on a call 
with someone else earlier today. And we were talking about that trust. I think because this is a noisy world and there's so many things that are in front of our face all the time, including Facebook, we'll just say social media in general. So many things are coming at us all the time. So we're constantly comparing ourselves to others, wondering if we should be in a similar place. And that is when we have to really step back. And I think that is so important, trusting and leaning into it and knowing that we're going to screw up along the way. We are not going to be perfect. We were created for perfection. That would be a boring world anyways. (laughs) But know that you're not alone in this journey. There's other people out there screwing up all the time too. And they're going to tell you it's okay. It's okay. So for those that are listening today, I want you to know you're not alone. That's kind of the point of having this podcast and sharing these stories with you. We get it. And Melanie, I just appreciate you being vulnerable and opening up and and sharing your story, your beautiful story with Jeffrey and wisdom. Because I think people, whether you're, you're four days, four months, or four years in, it is so important to know that there's someone just a little further ahead on their journey mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can seek for guidance, but also know that there are lots of resources out there, people to tap into to help give you some guidance along the way to to let you know, hey, you know, you're doing it. And and sometimes that's enough. So thank you so much for being here today. I'm really honored to have had you you on the podcast. Yay. And for, again, those of you who are listening in the show notes, you're going to have some links to be able to get to some of the things that we've referenced here. You know, a group that you can connect with other widows, link to resources on my website. But just know, my friends, that you're not alone. We're here for you on this journey. And in some of the future episodes, you're going to hear from other widows on our special widow episodes of the podcast next week. Um, On the podcast, you're going to be hearing from one of my kiddos, which I'm super excited to have them here with us on the show. These kids speak from experience and have so much wisdom. So please join us for that upcoming episode. And I cannot wait to connect with you down the road. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to design a life you truly love after loss, I invite you to join my Becoming You coaching program. It's a program for women healing from loss where I can personally help you get unstuck and moving forward with confidence. If you're asking yourself, what do I do now? Then don't wait another minute to get started and go to www.erinhinty.com linked in the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute breakthrough session today. I look forward to uncovering what's next for you on your journey.